back to the Anthrophiles. In the last episode about evolution, we talked about what evolution is and what it isn't, the mechanisms behind it, evidence for the theory, and some of the misconceptions surrounding it. In this episode, however, we're going to talk about some of the important figures involved in the history of evolution and how their ideas might have affected society as a whole. In addition to historical figures, we'll also be talking about some contemporary evolutionary scientists who have been challenging long-accepted theories by studying them from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. I'm Katrina. And we're the Anthrophiles. So I chose to continue with this topic because I wanted to take a deeper dive into some of the people involved. Um, Because last time, you know, we talked about more of like the sciency behind it. But now Mm -hmm. I want to know about like the drama, the drama, exactly, (laughs) the gossip, the people. Um, And also before researching for these episodes, the only like evolutionary scientist that really came to mind for me was Darwin. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a little sad. So I wanted to learn more about the other people. Sure. All right. So are you guys ready to talk about some scientists? I'm so ready. (laughs) No other way I want to spend the Friday of May weekend. I know. (laughs) So first, we're going to start our discussion um, by talking about a man named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Yeah. Oh, I know him. Right? He sounds familiar. So Lamarck was born on August 1st, 1744 in a village in the north of France. Um, During his life, he spent time studying at a seminary, became an officer in the French army, worked as a bank clerk, and eventually began studying medicine and botany, and even published a book on the plants of France in 1778, which was met with great acclaim. Sounds like a fun guy. He does. He did a lot of stuff. (laughs) Well-rounded. Okay. So after publishing his book, Lamarck was working as an underpaid assistant in the Royal Botanical Gardens, <laughs> which involves <laughs> so relatable. Underpaid, yeah. underpaid is assistant is so relatable. Like future career. Oh, just just wait, <laughs> just wait. Um, so he was working in the Royal Botanical Gardens, which involved medical education and biological research. Um, In 1793, the garden was converted into the National Museum of Natural History, and Lamarck was a big proponent of this reorganization. Um, And it was decided that it would be run by 12 professors that all specialized in varying scientific fields. Cool. Unfortunately for Lamarck, he was appointed as Professor of the Natural History of Insects and Worms. Or (laughs) Invertebrates. That sucks. (laughs) So not only did Lamarck not know anything about invertebrates, um, in the eyes of the other professors at the museum, being the professor of insects and worms was the least prestigious role. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I love the hierarchy. It's like, oh, you said he bugs? Yeah. <laughs> you get worms all day? <laughs> um, I'm studying leaves. It's like, oh. <laughs> um, he didn't let this discourage him, though. And he worked to create a new field of biology by researching and classifying the museum's large collection of invertebrates and passing his knowledge down to his students. Nice. So he said, fine, laugh at me, but look at me go. Yeah. You know, that's what he said. (laughs) (laughs) He said, well, I'm going to be in Emily's Anthrophiles episode. Yeah, (laughs) and you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. So then in 1801... Lamarck began to publish his ideas about evolution. And before we get into this, I I want to say that I am not a professional scientist. (laughs) 
It's your catchphrase on this show. Yes, it is my catchphrase. I just don't want anybody to be mad at me. (laughs) I am not a professional scientist, but I will try my best at explaining these theories based on the information that I have found. Okay. So Lamarck's theory of evolution is often referred to as a Lamarckism, very creative, (laughs) and heavily involves the idea of inheritance of acquired characteristics. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all. It does sound familiar. Okay, so to explain this, I'm actually going to use a very popular example, and we're going to compare Lamarck's hypothesis to Darwin's theory of evolution, since they seem to be talked about together a lot. Okay. And also we're more familiar with Darwin's, like, theory, Mm -hmm. because it is It's Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so do either of you remember from biology class in high school or middle school, the diagram of a giraffe stretching its neck to reach leaves on a high tree? No. You don't remember that? Yeah, and it's not real. Yes. It's not for real. It's not for real. He was wrong. Um, But Lamarck hypothesized that organisms changed their behavior in response to the environment, and and this changed behavior would alter the structure of their organs and body structures, um, which they could pass on to their offspring. Um, So the use or disuse of body structures could cause them to increase in size or disappear over generations, according to his theory. Um, Using our giraffe example, he thought that giraffes developed their long necks and legs because of generations of giraffes stretching to reach high tree leaves. He hypothesized that this stretching caused the body structures of the individual giraffes to change and that these changes were passed down to offspring. So the, I didn't, I never saw the poster of the giraffe. So are you saying that public school education was wrong? No, Lamarck was wrong. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I understand now. Yes. No, public school got this one right. Okay. But Lamarck didn't. Okay. (laughs) Um, Alternatively... Darwin's theory of natural selection says that the giraffes that happened to have longer necks and legs than others had a higher chance of getting food, while giraffes with shorter necks and legs had a lower probability of survival because they couldn't access as much food as their tall counterparts. Mm -hmm. Also, um, where Darwin believed that evolution was nonlinear and never finished, Lamarck did believe that there was an end goal to evolution. Do you have any idea of what the end goal of evolution might be? Wings and a third eye. (laughs) And a tail. Growing it back. Okay, Katrina. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Being able to do everything. so narcissistically. What is the end goal of evolution? Oh, like being perfect. Being perfectly adapted to... Being human. Oh! We're we're perfect? So no third eye? No third eye, unless that's your idea of perfection. <laughs> well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so. <laughs> <laughs> the third eye of the beholder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he thought the end goal was humans. Um, so to anyone out there who thinks that they are the end goal of evolution. <laughs> this, this can't be it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> this can't be the last <laughs> thing. There's no way I am the end goal <laughs> to <laughs> evolution. <laughs> no. Me too. So I have a quote from a PBS article that sums this up really well. It says, quote, Lamarck believed that living things evolved in a continuously upward direction through simple to more complex forms toward human perfection. He thought very highly of it. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) Um, 
So, unfortunately, again, for Lamarck, (laughs) according to an article from UC Berkeley, which is where I got a lot of this information from, um, Lamarck's work was... Lamarck's work was either um, ignored or highly criticized during his lifetime. Um, He never fully gained the respect of his colleagues, and he died in poverty in 1829 without much recognition. But, and I don't know how true this is, but I did read it in an article. I read that early evolutionary scientists such as Darwin did later recognize him as an accomplished zoologist and a predecessor of evolution. So just to be clear, he he was throwing out all these theories, but they were all wrong. Yes. Okay, but he was still giving it a he try. He was thinking about it. He was trying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's good. Like, he was just sort of the foundation of, like, well, all this is wrong, so let's see what's right. <laughs> but I have some more oh, on the mark. I'm ready. Um. So according to a magazine that I read, sci- some scientists who study epigenetics have been discussing how parts of Lamarck's hypothesis about acquired characteristics are somewhat correct based on new findings. Mm -hmm. So some parts of his theory were correct, but he just didn't get to see, like, the new science and how parts of it were now being, like, proven. Unfortunately for him. Unfortunately. Um, And I definitely don't understand epigenetics enough to talk about it, but if anyone, like to read more about it the article i read will be in the source list okay for this episode i'm not the person to explain (laughs) Um, so that's kind of a wrap on lamarck do you guys have any like final thoughts about him before we move on i feel bad that they were bullying him about his bugs yeah don't feel too bad okay we need to have Professor Reedy on this. She taught me anything I know about epigenetics. <laughs> she is actually the one who suggested that I put that little tidbit in there exactly. about epigenetics. And she's like, I can explain it to you if you want. I'm like, it's not worth <laughs> it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if we really wanted to get into it, she would be a great guest star on the episode. Yeah. Yes. Maybe one day. Okay. Now I want to talk briefly about a political economist named Thomas Malthus, who was born in 1766 in England. I feel like I've heard that name before. Yes. So it is, I don't have this written down, but after reading this, the title political economist and then being talked about <laughs> Snooze. in an, in an like a episode about evolution. It's like, that's not related. No. But anyway. Um... So he was not an evolutionary scientist. Okay. Spoiler alert. But we are still going to talk a little bit about him because it has been said that his ideas on population control inspired Darwin to think about the struggle between individuals in a species in nature. Oh. Yeah. So in 1789, Malthus published a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population. And in this book, Malthus states that the human population will grow at a faster rate than the food supply and that there are natural checks that will take place, such as famine, war, and disease, that will pull the population back down. So in my script, I put natural in quotes because, at least in my opinion, I'm not sure how natural, like, famine and war are, mm-hmm. especially if there are is, like, plenty of food to go around in a society. Yeah. This is definitely giving very much bio freshman year of high school mm, in yeah, yeah. upstate New York, <laughs> at least. So, I watched a crash course video about this. Hell yeah. Shout out Hank Green. Yeah. <laughs> um, and according to the video, Malthus compared human populations to rabbits. 
feel like everything I say just like makes this guy go a little bit more downhill. Every, like he's going down the rabbit yeah, hole a little the, bit. The rabbit hole. Liter- literally. Um, but with rabbits, famine and disease would cause more immediate death, and Malthus saw that this didn't happen with humans. Instead, people lived in poverty and just in less than favorable conditions. Yeah. Um, he also thought that aid for the poor would only elongate their misery, so he believed that there shouldn't be any. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> that was um, sarcastic. I'm, I'm so sorry, but that's Katrina. literally what that conservative guy said yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> He well, was like, well, if you feed the poor, they're just going to be hungry the next poor. day. Oh, my God. Maybe he's very familiar with Malthus's <laughs> work. Malthus's ideas about population have also influenced policymakers. And an example Great. of this, and this can be connected to, I think, your episode. Okay. Um, Queen Elizabeth I mm-hmm. enacted a law called the English Poor Law, where food would be provided to those in need. We talked about this a little bit. We did. So... In 1834, the influence of Malthus's ideas influenced the Poor Law Amendment Act, which basically put an end to it. It was it ar- stopped the poor law. Yes. It said, don't feed the poor anymore. Right. Okay. It was argued that providing aid to the poor would just encourage them to keep reproducing, which would, in turn, worsen poverty. <laughs> um, and his ideas have helped um, them embrace ideas like social Darwinism and eugenics, which... <coughs> so sorry. God, stop interrupting me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to go too deep into eugenics, but I was wondering if either of you could take a stab at defining it or if you could think of any instances of eugenics in practice. Um, I don't know if, if I'm the right person to give, a, like, a definition of eugenics. Just, like, a loose. But from what I understand of it and what we've learned in class, it's, like, that certain people have, like, biologically better like traits better biological traits than others and the ones with the better biological traits should be like raised up and preserved and those like without the ideal biological traits like should be eradicated right so like some examples would be like forced sterilization or genocide Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. nazi germany um any any way to um you know get the favorable traits to rise up mm-hmm. um i think we also talked about um being able to pick certain traits from your genetics like oh, oh I like want a like designer babies and yes stuff. like mm-hmm. oh i want my baby to have blue eyes and blonde hair like mm-hmm. sort of thing um which is interesting because it's like a whole rabbit hole you can go down because mm-hmm. like well you know, uh, in some aspects, you'd want to get rid of some awful diseases that are, you know, genetically passed down. But at the same time, then that opens up people to be like, well, I want my baby to have blue eyes. Like, right. Like, where's the line? <laughs> where does where is the line? Yeah. OK, so the National Human Genome Research Institute says eugenics is the scientifically inaccurate theory that humans can be improved through selective breeding of populations. So the term was first coined in 1883 by Francis Galton and claimed that health and disease as well as social and intellectual characteristics were based upon heredity and the concept of race. Um, So the idea of eugenics is heavily tied to racism and scientific racism. And some examples of it in practice are slavery in the U.S., Nazi Germany, the forced sterilization of individuals who were declared as feeble-minded in the U.S., and anti-immigration sentiments. And it was actually eugenic 
eugenics practices in the U.S. that inspired Hitler. I remember learning about that. Which yeah, is interesting because, like, like, U.S. history is like, like, we defeated the Nazis, but it's like he literally got his ideas from us. But we inspired them us. first. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which we don't like to talk about no. in the U.S. a lot. Don't like which to is talk unfortunate. About so we're going to talk about it here. Perfect. <laughs> um, so it should be noted that in the U.S., non white people and people with disabilities were disproportionately targeted by eugenicists during the entirety of the 20th century. Um, And eugenics as a whole is an example of how people's misunderstanding of heredity and evolution has been used to promote racial and political agendas at the expense of entire populations. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also an example of how science and evolution have been twisted to serve malicious purposes, even though the science of evolution is one of the main means for scientists to discredit the concepts of race and racial science. That's crazy. That's ironic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's kind of all I'm going to say about eugenics in this episode for the sake of time. But it is a huge and extremely important topic that could have, you know, an entire episode to itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So to wrap up on Malthus, because that's who we were talking about. (laughs) um, It was his idea that there was a constant struggle for survival in society that inspired the thinking of the next evolutionary figure that we'll be talking about. So we've already talked quite a bit about this person in the last episode, but let's briefly discuss the one and only Charles Darwin. Woo! <laughs> so he was born on February 12th, 1809 in England. Um, there he attended both the University of Edinburgh and Christ College at Cambridge, where his interest in science and biology grew. While at Christ College, one of his professors encouraged him to join a voyage aboard the HMS Beagle, which was set to circumnavigate the globe. Darwin was convinced... Wow, I went off in this section. Okay. Um, So Darwin decided to go, and the voyage began in December 1831 when he was only 22 years old. Wow. Doesn't that make you feel good? (laughs) I can still catch up to him. Girl. I got three days to go on a maiden (laughs) voyage. It's true, you do. Um, But it was on this voyage that Darwin traveled to the Galapagos Islands and gathered specimens that would help him create his theory of evolution by natural selection. Um, His beliefs about the creation of species began to formulate after his voyage, and he began to think of the biological world differently. He noticed that the creatures he found in the Galapagos were unique to the area and existed nowhere else on Earth, but he also noted that each of these creatures shared a noticeable relationship with those on the American continent. Hmm. Um, He was one of the first to outwardly challenge the thought of spontaneous creation and received some backlash from the church but his ideas became very popular in the growing secular field of science and biology. And I want to note here that Darwin was able to do this because he had the means and popularity. Other lower-ranking scientists also had theories about evolution, but didn't have the same luxuries as Darwin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also want to mention that the publication of On the Origin of Species, which was his book that Mm -hmm. we talked about last time, was largely due to Alfred Russell Wallace, who, if you remember from last episode, independently created the theory of natural selection. And Darwin may have never published his findings if he didn't think that Wallace would do it first. Okay. So it wasn't just Darwin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So again, he eventually published his findings in 1859 in the book On the Origin of Species, which we talked about last time. Um, So we've already talked about the theory of evolution by natural selection and what it is and isn't in my last episode so i don't want to talk about that again but i do want to talk a little bit about the impact of darwin's work um 
So firstly, Darwin can be credited for laying the foundation of modern evolutionary thought, um, but unfortunately not only positive things Mm -hmm. came from his ideas. Um, So could either of you guess what we might be talking about next? I think I might have already mentioned it, but it is a term that has Darwin's name in it, even though it was not a belief of his. Social Darwinism. Darwinism. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about social Darwinism and the idea of survival of the fittest. Um, So to talk about these things, I first want to introduce you to a man named Herbert Spencer, an English philosopher, biologist, anthropologist, and sociologist born in Derby, United Kingdom on April 27th, 1820. Um, Like Darwin, he was very interested in the idea of evolution and actually began writing about the subject eight years before Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published in 1859. Cool. Um, Spencer first introduced the term survival of the fittest in 1864 in the book Principles of Biology. And unlike Darwin, who was interested in natural selection in the context of biology, Spencer was interested in how natural selection related to human society. Okay. So you can kind of see where this is going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So knowing that his ideas were in in the context of human society, do either of you want to take a stab at, like, what social Darwinism, like, is and means? I feel like I know what it is in my head, but, like, a, a definitive definition is hard. Mm-hmm. But it's, like, in society, like, you got to fight your way to the top or else you're just going to be, like, poor and hungry kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So the Oxford Languages Dictionary defines social Darwinis- Darwinism as, and this is a quote from the dictionary, the theory that individuals, groups, and peoples are subject to the same Darwinian laws of natural selection as plants and animals. Now largely discredited, social Darwinism was advocated by Herbert Spencer and others in the late 19th and 20th centuries and was, was used to justify political conservatism, conserva- <laughs> conservatism, imperialism, and racism and to discourage intervention in reform. So, in other words, he and other proponents of social social Darwinism believe that within human society, the fit would inherit intelligence and the ability to be wealthy, while those who were unfit were born without intelligence and the ability to accumulate wealth. Mm. Um, That's so funny, like, just, like, the idea of thinking, like, well, this person was born, like, the right way, so they're going to be rich and wealthy. It's like... Yeah. Like, it's, like, what? in your biology. It's like, there's a lot of dumb people that are pretty rich too well maybe they just didn't think so (laughs) (laughs) they weren't self-aware um and spencer believed that parents could genetically pass learned qualities onto their offspring Mm. um and these ideas have also affected policy and laws um so spencer believed that there shouldn't be laws that help workers the poor and others and Oh, and others he believed were genetically unfit because it would just hinder the evolution of civilization by protecting the unfit from extinction. Jesus Christ. That's awful. I don't know how people can be so cruel and, like, heartless. Right. Like, thinking that someone deserves to be... Like, doesn't deserve to be, like, like Treated like a human being. Yeah, and alive. Yeah. So, the concept of survival of the fittest is largely misunderstood and misused today. Many people think it means survival of the biggest, strongest, or fastest, but that's not true. Um, Just think of all the different animals that are small, slow, and seemingly weak. Squirrels. Exactly. But they're still kicking. They are. Very well, too. Mm -hmm. Turtles. 
They're slow Aww. but steady. They are slow. Or tortoise? Steady. You know, I think both. both. You know, the, s- the fable? Snails. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you get it. <laughs> um, so many biological anthropologists are working hard to unravel some of the misconceptions about evolution that stem from Lamarck, Spencer's, and even Darwin's work from that time. Um, so one example of someone doing that is Dr. Augustine Fuentes, an anthropology professor at Princeton University, and another is Dr. Jeremy De Silva, an anthropology professor at Dartmouth, with his edited volume, A Most Interesting Problem, What Darwin's Descent of Man Got Right and Wrong About Human Evolution. So these are anthropologists today yeah. that are kind of like redefining what's, what evolution means. Right. Because we've been going based off of Darwin for so long. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So they're kind of taking some of the misconceptions and like w- really working to like unravel them mm-hmm. and like kind of expose them as maybe not correct or That's true. That's awesome. Yeah. So before we move on, do you guys have any final thoughts or comments about this? You know, social Darwinism. You know, it just sounds like <laughs> I think I feel like we're, you're going to talk a little bit about it more because we have like new anthropologists on the scene nowadays but back then it's like the only people who really had the opportunity afforded to them to be a successful anthropologist was someone who was white a man right and you know and we kind of touched on that already where it's like you know we remember darwin because you know he published his book or books but other scientists and people like had these thoughts Mm -hmm. but didn't have the means to express them or have like the like societal like credibility Mm -hmm. given to them to like express these ideas and then when like only people from one like grouping are studying the same thing they're all going to come to similar conclusions because they're not looking into how evolution is different for like a man versus a woman or i guess female versus male is like the it's like you read my episode (laughs) that's so crazy but i'm excited to see like how we know more now that we have more diverse voices in the evolution conversation today yeah so my next point was actually like that I wanted to point out that so far everyone we've talked about is a white man. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does show that the field of anthropology and more specifically evolutionary science is heavily dominated by white men and that most of the material regarding the subject is from the perspective of a white man. So like you said, we're, we're missing perspectives here. Mm-hmm. We're missing different ideas. And as we know, when a field, like you said, is dominated by one group of people who are all similar to each other, there is bound to be bias, whether it be conscious or unconscious. Um, so I know I already talked your ears off about Darwin and Spencer, but I'm not quite done with them yet. Keep it up. Um, so when learning about Darwin, especially, you typically hear things like revolutionary scientist, great thinker, and being called the father of evolution and long white beard yes long white beard mm-hmm. as well <laughs> that might be more unique to like you like santa okay <laughs> um so however one piece of information that often gets left out of lessons about figures like darwin and spencer is that they were actually sexist and racist and are this, we shocked yeah say this is what? probably not surprising but I don't ever remember learning too much about this, especially in, like, a high school biology class. A man class. Born, born in 1809 is <laughs> sexist and racist, racist, among other things, Crazy. I'm sure. I just, because, you know, I feel like we always put, like, people like Darwin, especially, like, mm-hmm. on a pedestal. Yeah. Like, a great scientist. 
And it's like, but also he was racist. Yeah. Racist. <laughs> oh my God, I say this all the time that like people are so complex and we cannot make historical figures either a hero or a villain because no one is either or like it's just so complicated right like they're just people <laughs> they're just yeah. people. people did things like you can do good things but you know do bad things too like it's, right it's yeah crazy. like you can be a good person who does bad things and you can be a bad person who does good things exactly, exactly. people are complicated yeah and complex which is the same thing and then it's like sorry when you like when you take that complexity and then you apply it to like and especially with something like science which is so like fact-based mm-hmm. too it's like but like just because something is fact-based like everyone has their own preconceived like prejudices and it's always going to play out in what you're doing no matter how factual or statistical it is right lots of bias yeah exactly so in short these two people believed darwin and spencer believed that evolution had made men superior to women more specifically that they believed that white men were on top and darwin actually wrote about this in his book the descent of man published in 1871 they gloss over that part in biology class they really do um so an article from the smithsonian magazine states that quote for darwin that superiority largely played out in the intellectual and artistic realm he wrote quote if two lists were made of the most eminent men and women in poetry painting sculpture music comprising composition and performance history and science and philosophy the two lists would not bear comparison oh and because the women's is so much better (laughs) (laughs) good one Um, And then Spencer echoed Darwin's sentiments and went further, postulating that in order for the human race to flourish, women must devote their lives to reproduction. Ooh. How do you feel about that? Definitely (laughs) my only purpose on this earth. Right. (laughs) So, and I want to talk a little bit about this quote, um, how Darwin is saying, like, if you put a list together of these two things next to each other, men would obviously be better. But during that time, and maybe you can speak to this more because you were a history minor, <laughs> and I call on you for every <laughs> specific thing. a history major. <laughs> and you're a history major. My bad. I'm so sorry. I swear I didn't forget about it. A master's candidate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but no, my history yeah. minor. <laughs> so during this time, though. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, for him to compare the two, like, I don't imagine women were given the luxury to explore these yeah very much so like for him to compare the two but not realize that or maybe he did realize and didn't care but just to think about it how men were kind of already on that pedestal yeah when even if women did participate in things like poetry and performance and whatever Mm -hmm. like they had to kind of claw their way to the Mm -hmm. pedestal to even be even yeah well, because I feel, well, first of all, like, because it was about, like, art stuff specifically, like, poetry, plays, Like, anything, music. like, intellectual. Okay. So, it's, like, the only women that would be able to participate in that would be extremely wealthy women because they would have had, you know, like, all their assets taken care of. You know, maybe they didn't have to worry about getting married right away because their dad or their brother can take care of them kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. the few women that, like, were able to do that were only going to be, like, the wealthiest of the wealthy, first of all. And even then, they're not going to garner the same amount of respect or, like, critical acclaim mm-hmm. as the man in that field would. So, and also, art is so subjective, too. Right. So, it's, like, how can you, like, you can't... It, 
for most things you can't objectively say like this is better right and just with like bias like like coming from like when we're talking about perspectives again Mm -hmm. like a man may think that a man's work is better yeah and then even today um I've noticed even, like, with authors, sometimes, like, women authors will use, like, their initials and then their last name. Yes. To leave it ambiguous. That's so true. Um, like S.E. Hinton with The Outsiders, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just a. It's true. Katrina, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, you know, even the women that were writing, you know, poetry or creating art, these are white women that had the materials and... Um, luxury to do so you know whether it's education or whether it's even just having like a paintbrush and you know a canvas or something Um, so it's definitely not um, very fair to compare um, men versus women when you know women even white women were barely able to publish certain things not that it didn't happen but it's not a fair comparison at all Mm -hmm. I agree (laughs) (laughs) Um, so a similar idea to these two guys' idea about, like, men are the greatest, um, is the idea of sociobiology, which is the idea that cultural behavior is rooted in biology or evolution. So, like, in the perspective of Darwin and Spencer, like, men are better because of their evolution. Mm -hmm. Like, they were evolved to be better than everybody else, specifically white men. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So, for example, in Victorian England, which is when Darwin lived, if it were believed that women were the weaker sex only intended for reproduction, scientists may have concluded that they evolved specifically for those purposes, even though there's no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I'm going to tell you about someone who you're going to love. I just know it. I'm ready. So after becoming familiar with Darwin's and Spencer's ideas, Antoinette Brown Blackwell, a woman's rights activist and the first female ordained Protestant minister began to formulate her own ideas about Darwin's and Spencer's work. Um, Blackwell openly admitted that she had no formal scientific training, but she had studied privately. Also, she believed that one thing that qualified her to speak about the conclusions made about women in the context of evolution is that she herself was a woman, so she understood what it was like to be a woman. Sure. I think it's interesting that she's a minister and she's also studying science for all the way back then. That's like two things that didn't go together a lot. That's cool. Right. So Blackwell published her first book titled Studies in General Science in 1869. Um, She even sent a copy to Charles Darwin, who wrote her back, but wrongfully addressed her as Dear Sir. Oh, man. (laughs) Is, Is that a compliment, though? (laughs) <laughs> oh like he took her like he didn't like he didn't know what her like 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 who she was so he just automatically assumed Since. that she was a guy yeah and like, maybe he thought that she was sort of credible well what did he say i don't know oh, i'm sorry. so sorry <laughs> <laughs> um moving on <laughs> But it was in her second book titled The Sexes Throughout Nature, which was published in 1875, that she addressed this oversight by Darwin and directly challenged his and Herbert Spencer's claims about women regarding evolution. A quote from the Smithsonian Magazine says, quote, In fact, it was this assumption that minds of learning must be, by default, male that she would address in her second book. So she definitely, like, noticed the dear sir and immediately mm. is like, I know what my second book is 
Um, additionally, Blackwell wanted to prove with her book that Darwin's and Spencer's claims were not only, quote, morally distasteful, but that they were also unscientific in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, Hit them where it hurts. I know, right? Like, you devoted your entire life to science. And you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> so, first she thought that in order to address the claims made by these scientists, more women had to join the conversation because only they could approach the topic with a feminine viewpoint. Sure. Um, so, I have a quote from Blackwell that was included in the article. Um, male scientists stood on a, quote, a learned masculine eminence looking from their isolated male standpoints through their men's spectacles and through the misty atmosphere of entailed heredity, hereditary glamour. Men's spectacles. I like it. What do you, what do you think about that quote? She sums it right up. She, she does. does. So the thing I found most interesting about her book, The Sexes Throughout Nature, is that she used Darwin's own data to reach her own conclusions. And after re-examining his findings, Blackwell argued that Darwin's conclusions were flawed because he neglected to examine the characteristics unique to females in all species. It's kind of like, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Mm. Okay. So she herself organized life into various categories, which were plants, insects, fish, aquatic mammals, birds, herbivores, carnivores, and humans. Then she examined the characteristics of males and females in each group. Um, and the example that the article uses is that she noted that although male lions were sh- larger and stronger, female lions have more complexities in their structure and function because of their ability to give birth and to feed their young. And Blackwell ultimately concluded that although males and females of all species, including humans, had different strengths and some differences in body structures, they are true equals and that the strength, strength of each exists in equilibrium. Can I just say, like, regardless of who is right or wrong or whatever gender or sexuality they go by, it's such a serve to use someone else's data to yeah. get your <laughs> point and just be like, well, this is what I found and this is what you said and, you know, I'm getting a different conclusion than you. Right. <laughs> I found that so kind of cool because yeah. it's like, well, I examined, like, your data. Yeah. So you can't tell me that my uh-huh. data is flawed because and, like, it is yours. Because, like, being a woman of that time period, too, like, she must have known, like, if I'm going to go against them, they're going to come after me so hard. But how do you come after her when she's literally using the exact research right. that you did? Um, today, Blackwell isn't remembered or credited as a scientist, but her work was extremely important in breaking down barriers for women to enter scientific and intellectual fields. So, Thank any, you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Queen. Truly. So do you guys have any, like, last thoughts about her? Or have you ever heard of her before? Definitely hadn't heard of her. I don't think so. But now I know. It's just crazy that you don't, like, I know we, I feel like we say this all the time. Like, it's crazy that you don't learn that Mm -hmm. in schools. Like, you learn all about Darwin. You totally know who Darwin was. And for good reasons, because the whole theory of evolution is, like, rooted in what he, like, discovered. But it's not all set in stone and it's not all perfect right it's just like there could be a slide in the biology high school class about yeah like one question on the test yeah (laughs) um and you know maybe that has something to do with the fact that like she's not credited as a scientist Mm -hmm. but like during that time like how could she be yeah exactly you know so we're close to being done with this episode But first, I want to fast forward to the 21st century and talk about an anthropologist named Dr. Holly Dunsworth. Dr. Dunsworth is a professor at the University of Rhode Island and is known for her work in re-examining long-standing evolutionary theories from a different perspective. Cool. 
shout out to rhode island (laughs) (laughs) um it's the one thing they got going that and the big blue puck it's true um in this episode we will specifically be talking about her work debunking a long-held theory known as the obstetric dilemma Ooh. and i feel like you might have heard this before that term and would you have any idea of like what it means i'm not recognizing it but i know the name holly dunsworth because i feel i hear the anthropology professors talking about her a lot she's a fan favorite Mm -hmm. (laughs) obstetric dilemma yeah that sounds very familiar to me at least the is the word is that about like birthing okay yes Yes. so you have heard okay (laughs) Um, so this term, obstetric dilemma, was created by anthropologist anthropologist Sherwood Learned Washburn. That's a name. It is. <laughs> in 1960. And I'm just going to read you a definition from a research article written by Dr. Dunsworth and other scientists to like define it. I'm not going to try sure. to explain it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the article states that the hypothesis holds that antagonistic selection for a large neonatal brain in a narrow bipedal adapted birth canal poses a problem for childbirth. The hominin solution is to truncate gestation, resulting in an altricule neonate. I'm not sure if I said that right. Keep but that's going. What it says. So now I'm going to try to translate that. Please do. Right. Um, Because it took me a few tries to, like, read it and, Mm -hmm. like, look up all the individual words and come up with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the hypothesis is first saying that females need to have a large enough birth canal to fit a big-brained baby through, but that they also must have narrow enough hips to be good at walking on two feet. That's That's a dilemma. Yeah. So the hypothesis says that this is antagonistic because these two features oppose each other. Mm -hmm. Um. According to the hypothesis, the solution to this problem is to shorten the time that the baby is developing in the womb and have the baby born, quote, prematurely so the head can fit through the birth canal, which results in offspring that cannot immediately live on their own and also results in a very tight fit resulting in a painful birth. I think it would also result in death, possibly. (laughs) That's what that sounds like. Are they suggesting, like, like, to have the baby earlier than nine months yeah. no so it's like at nine months is still like the baby oh, isn't fully developed okay it can't take care oh of i understand i'm so yeah. sorry i missed like a little sentence there <laughs> i was <laughs> like what i'm thinking what why are we trying to induce women to have premature babies so <laughs> the idea is that no, nine months is, is premature, premature but Whoa. the baby yeah. couldn't get out if you know, it like stayed in any longer has, like, a smushy head and like can't like lift their head on their own yes it's like premature in that way oh okay um so the baby has developed in utero for, utero for as long as possible before becoming too big to fit through and thus has to be born early and with great difficulty. And this is the, like, the dilemma because it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. Um, a quote from an article from undark.org states that, quote, among other things, the dilemma has been used to suggest that the wider birth-giving hips of women have hindered them locomotively and athletically and perhaps even evolutionarily compared to men. Hmm. So basically, um, because women have wider hips for childbirth, um, they're not as good as men at walking and doing other athletic (laughs) activities. So if you're able to reproduce a child... Yeah, like if you're you're able to give birth. 
Yes. <laughs> at, at, as good as, as good. As, as good at sports. As like men or like non birth giving humans. Got it. Yeah. So this is where Dr. Dunsworth comes in. In 2007, she began her research into finding out if there was any merit to the obstetric dilemma. She and fellow scientist Dr. Anna Warriner, a professor of biology and biomechanics, tested the hypothesis that the wider pelvises found in women decreased the efficiency of upright movement. And the results from the test did not support this hypothesis and found that males and females are equally efficient walking and running. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking and surprising. Um, Dr. Dunsworth researched the fit of a baby's head through the birth canal. According to the obstetric dilemma, humans need help giving birth because of the tight fit. But she showed that m- there were many other mammals and primates that also have a tight fit but are able to give birth on their own. So she also found that human babies aren't actually born prematurely. The human gestation period is as long as you would expect it to be compared to other mammals and primates um, and based on the developmental needs of human babies specifically. Mm. Um, Human babies are so helpless compared to other mammals and primates largely because their brains have a lot more growing to do compared to other mammals and primates to reach, you know, our much larger brain as adults. We may seem underdeveloped, but we really aren't when we look at the data compared to other animals. Hmm. And lastly, Dr. Dunsworth also examined the obstetric dilemma by researching and testing metabolic rate. So going, um, so when researching this in, back in the research article written by Dr. Dunsworth and the other scientists, it is stated that quote, our analysis suggests that limits to maternal metabolism are the primary constraints on human gestation length and fetal growth. So during pregnancy, a mother's metabolic rate will double. And metabolism is like the chemical reactions in the body that turn food into energy. And metabolic rate is the amount of energy used during a certain period. So towards the end of pregnancy, the fetus's energy increases exponentially and it becomes costlier for the fetus to grow in the uterus. So Dr. Dunsworth explains that the mother's metabolic rate will reach its limit even though the fetus has to continue to grow. So the only way for this to happen is for the baby to be born and to continue to grow outside the uterus. Hmm. So after testing the obstetric dilemma, um, Dr. Dunsworth created a new hypothesis to explain why pregnancy in humans ends before a baby is fully developed. And she calls this the egg hypothesis, short for energetics of gestation and fetal growth. And unlike the obstetric dilemma, this hypothesis actually applies to more mammals than just humans. Hmm. So, do you guys have any, like, final thoughts on Blackwell or Dr. Dunsworth? Or anything else that we talked about in this episode? They're pretty cool. I'll I'll give them that. Like, it's cool that they're like, hey, like, wait a second. Let's reassess what we think we know and see if we can find a better explanation for it. Yeah, and I think for at least Dr. Dunsworth's work... Um, like the obstetric dilemma is going back to that like male perspective on things. Yeah. Um, and you know, she re- kind of re-examined it from mm-hmm. her own perspective and did her own research kind of without that like male bias. And it's like, now we have a whole new hypothesis yeah. of why, you know, babies are born when they are. Yeah. That's awesome. Right. You would think that like, even without all the science that you just explained to us, which is super helpful to understand that, you know, a woman's body or any childbearing person's body is going to, I guess, go. they're going to go into labor at a certain point, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
the wrong time. Do, does that make sense? Like, yeah. Like at nine months of, you know, people for centuries have been giving birth at this nine-month period for the most part, not everybody, mm-hmm. but for the most part, this is the, you know, the age that people give birth. I feel like that's just sort of Yeah, it's sense. like, it's kind of odd that it was considered almost like an evolutionary, like, flaw or, like, mm. dilemma, if you will. Where it's like this has been happening for so long, it's like there there must be an explanation that yeah. doesn't involve like oh well, you know, birth giving people or women are just bad like, at sports, bad, <laughs> yeah. bad at walking. And like, They're not the ones having contractions. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I just want to say that my last two episodes have barely scratched the surface of the history, people, and ideas surrounding the topic of evolution, and that there is so much more research out there. And also that science is constantly learning, as we see with Dr. Dunsworth, and that it's important for science to be more inclusive and saturated with diversity. And this is the only way to, you know, challenge these long-standing theories that may not be correct. And to get new perspectives in science. Yeah. Um, so that's all I have for you today. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Anthrophiles, and we'll see you in two weeks with my Sarah and Katrina's last episode together. For a full list of my sources, go to the link tree in our Instagram. We would like to give a special thanks to Professors Jamie Ellinger and Sarah Reedy for editing and supporting this episode. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rinesh Shafu, our producer and editor, and David DeRoche in the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time.